0: Well, this morning we come to the fifth week in a series on the gospel and how the gospel impacts our everyday life. Each week I've been doing a fair amount of review because these ideas build on each other. It has a snowballing effect, and we're seeing that week after week. The main idea of this series and the main idea of the Bible is that the gospel is the good news that God is willing to save sinners through the work and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that gospel news, I hope you're not tired of hearing it, that gospel news is for everyone. It's for the sinner who is lost because the gospel is the only way to to get to God. And the gospel is for Christians we've been seeing because it's actually through the gospel that God grows us into maturity, that we become like God. I've said it for five straight weeks. Lord willing, I will keep saying it, that the gospel is not just some historical event that happened when you were at VBS as a kid. The gospel is intended by God to be active and to be constantly bearing fruit in our lives. And so what that means Is that the gospel is just as relevant in our everyday as it was when we first got saved? The gospel is not just relevant when we first get saved or when we come to church, but it's relevant on a normal Monday, Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock when there's chaos or boring, boring circumstance in your life. The gospel is for. everyday life. Now, this may not be what your Tuesday afternoons look like, but for some of you it is, but picture what your Tuesday afternoon looks like and all the different things that are going on. So, I want to start by challenging you this morning to ask yourself, does the gospel impact the way that you live on Tuesday afternoons at one o'clock? Does it affect your relationships? Does it affect your self-esteem and the way that you work? Does it influence how much happiness you experience in your life? I think for many of us, sadly, we would say, no. I mean, not, not really. I mean, I'm glad on Tuesdays that I'm not going to hell, I think, right? But, but I don't really see how this fits on, on in the normal part of my life. I think for many of us, if we're honest, we would have to say something like that. And we don't really know what to do about it. We don't really know how to change that. Well, that's what we're tackling in this series. We are trying to grow in our understanding and in our appreciation and our sense of what the gospel means so that we can actually know how to live and remain in the gospel. Last week, we developed two biblical themes that flow from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, and they flow back and forth through all the different parts of our our lives. We looked at the two themes of identity and righteousness. Our, our, Our identity is the way that we answer the question, do I measure up? Do I measure up? And then our sense of righteousness or rightness, our sense of okayness is, am I okay? Am I good enough? And what we saw was that as we look back in Genesis, that both of these things, our identity and our sense of rightness, have been established for us by God. He's the creator. And he made us in his image in order to show the world what he's like. Do you know that's the purpose for your life this morning? God has made you not to make money, not to just have kids, not to just, you know, be happy doing your thing. The whole purpose for your existence is to show other people what he's like. You're made in his image. That is your purpose. And God made us, and when he made us, he declared us to be what? Good. He looked at all that he had made and said it was very good. That is our sense of rightness, our sense of identity. But sin, of course, disrupted this. I mean, it wreaked havoc on this. When sin entered the world, God could no longer say that I see all that I have made and behold, it is very good. Instead, we read that the Bible, in the Bible, that God was not walking around blessing, but he was cursing. He was cursing what he had made. Instead of God saying, you are okay, I approve of you. God says, you are not okay, and I do not approve of you. Our sin has alienated us from God. And one of the consequences of this is that now we have a crisis of identity and a crisis of righteousness. Because we were designed by God to find our identity and our sense of okayness in him. And separated from God, the Bible says that in our sin, all of us are now trying to find these things in other ways. All of us. We are all trying to make a name for ourselves. We are all trying to prove to ourselves and to other people that we're okay, that we're good enough. And ever since the fall, we have been, as humanity, trying to find our identity, our purpose, and our sense of rightness in things other than God. And trust me, the decisions that you're making on Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock, whatever those decisions are, are totally influenced by these matters. How are you going to respond when your boss criticizes you or accuses you? How are you going to respond when you get that bad grade back on the test? How are you going to respond when your toddler throws a glass of milk at you? How are you going to respond when you see the girl that you think is prettier and skinnier than you. All of those Tuesday scenarios are totally matters of identity and okayness. And if you try to respond to these types of everyday situations without knowing what Christ has said about you and who you are in him, then I promise you, you are going to drift. You're going to drift away from the gospel and you're going to try to solve these problems without God and without Christ and without the gospel. You'll remember last week we looked at Romans chapter 10 verse 3 where Paul is saying that this is what we as humans always do. That when we reject God's righteousness, we seek to establish a righteousness, a sense of rightness, a sense of are we okay? What do we have to do to measure up? We sent, we try to establish that on our own. And you see, when we reject God's righteousness, we will always try to find our righteousness and our identity in other places. And it never works. You see, even as Christians, we have this tendency to drift. And it's what we have to fight. If you want to grow in the Christian life, if you want to make it to heaven, we have to fight this. As Christians, we have to actively guard against what I'm calling the gospel drift. Drifting away from the gospel. And now, if you're here today and if you're not a Christian, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad that you've joined us to worship and, and to be here and to hear God's word. But if I could just speak to you for just a moment. A lot of what you're going to hear today, it doesn't apply to you yet. You can't drift away from the gospel if you have never found the gospel. If you don't follow Christ, if you haven't given up your life and taken on his life, this doesn't apply to you. You instead are wholeheartedly committed to, to making a name for yourself in this world. That's what you're doing. That's what you think about. That's what your time spent on, your money. Totally committed to establishing your identity in Your ability to produce and what you look like and and your skills and what other people say about you or whatever it is right and you probably you're trying to be a good person I know you're here so on some level you know you might even be religious but you've got to know that you're kidding yourself you're kidding yourself you're not living up to God's standard I know that for me I don't even meet my own standards much less God's standards You're chasing the wind. You're building your house on sand and it's going to sink. And when the storm comes, you'll be blown away. And here's the thing. I know that you're tired. I know that you're tired. Because it doesn't matter how successful or unsuccessful you are. Both are unsatisfying. That's why when Jesus came and when Jesus announced the gospel, he did it in part like this, saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You don't have to work anymore. That's what we're saying this morning when we cease all of our striving. You don't have to work anymore. But you see, there's only one way to come to Jesus, and that's through the gospel. So the solution for you, whether you're a Christian, whether you're the most seasoned among us, or whether you're new to this, or not even a Christian, the solution for all of us is the same. It's to believe in the promises of the gospel. This past two weeks, we have been honing in on one of these gospel promises. The gospel is infinitely deep, so we're going to spend all of eternity sorting this stuff out. But we've been honing in on one promise, the promise of passive righteousness. Let's see if I can get my slides to cooperate. There we go. The promise of the gospel promise of passive righteousness. Now, that's kind of a churchy word or kind of a, a booky, bookish type word. And so if you remember, we were talking about this big theological idea of imputed righteousness or passive righteousness. Righteousness you don't have to work for. It's given to you as a gift. It's the promise that for those of us who are connected to God in Christ, that God has not just forgiven us. He approves of us. That he has not just forgiven us, but he approves of us. If I could give you one key phrase to take away, I would want this phrase to ring in your mind, that you are in Christ forgiven and accepted. Forgiven and accepted. God has not just paid off your sin debt, but He has credited your bank account with all of the good deeds that Jesus has done. You see, and when you start to think of the gospel like this, when you start to understand this, you're going to begin to see it is a big gospel and it points to a big God who is worthy of praise. So what I want to try to do today is we want to build on this theological foundation, right? We've got some theology, but now let's make it work for us, right? That's what theology is for. It helps us know how do we live. And so we want to try to bring it to bear, not just on Sundays at 10:45, but on Tuesdays at one o'clock. And so I want to try to show you two things. How the gospel impacts your Tuesday afternoons, like practically. How does it work? If I'm forgiven and if I'm accepted, so what, right? And the second thing is, what are some practical strategies for doing this? But I want to do this with a key text in mind. We could do this from a lot of different places in the Bible. You will notice that as you develop this understanding, as you have a lens to see this, you're gonna start seeing this all over the Bible. Once you understand what God says about us in Christ, it's going to change the way you read the Bible. There are, there are at least 160 passages in the Bible that, that give us the most basic sense of our identity with Christ. That we are in Christ or with Christ. They're all over the Bible. But we're going to look at just one today. Last week we looked at Romans 3, 21 and 22. It's a great place to start. But today we're going to look at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Just one verse and then meditate on it together. So look down at your Bibles or look up on the screen and let's hear God's word. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, can you spot the passive righteousness in this text? See if you can find it. you got to practice, right? Because I won't be with you on Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock. Can you find it? Okay. Who is it that is considered righteous in this text? Paul says, to the one who does not work. You could say, to the one who does not obey. Right? You can say that. To the one who does not even obey. But instead believes in Christ. And this Christ, he can, he can justify the ungodly, those people like me who don't obey. It's through his faith that he gets the credit for Jesus's righteousness. Do you see it? If you, you gotta track this logic. If you don't track this logic, this isn't gonna be that helpful. So I pray that you see it. So what does this mean for Tuesdays at one o'clock? What's this mean during math class? What's this mean before nap time? I came up with at least 10 reasons. And then I turned them down into seven, and I think I'm gonna have time for like four. So you can come back tonight and we'll do more of these together. I don't know how many I have, four or five. The first reason is this. If I'm already forgiven, and if I'm already accepted, then guess what? My self-esteem is not gonna be affected by success or failure. My self-esteem will not be affected by either success or failure. Here's how this works. If Christ has already established or re-established my identity in Christ, that I'm with Christ, then guess what? Nothing can shake that. Nothing can add to that. Nothing can improve that. Nothing can take away from it. Nothing can discredit it. So it doesn't matter whether I'm successful or a failure. That doesn't change anything because I am in Christ. Do you see it? Let's say, I was talking with someone last week who had to take the ACT, right? Let's just say that you have to take the ACT and there's loads of pressure on you, right? You know, because if you, if you do well, that opens up all sorts of doors, maybe scholarships, right? It might direct the career that you go into, plus people are gonna think you're smart or dumb, in my case, right? All, all sorts of things are, are gun, going to happen. It's, it's a way that the world measures you and the way that the world tells you how smart you are so they they give you a number and then they compare you to other people that's how these standardized tests work let's say since it's a story that you did well you did well good job right you did well and you were successful maybe even better than you expected mom and dad might slide you an extra 50 or something i don't know you it celebrates and that might, that makes you feel pretty good about yourself doesn't it right it's good i mean it, it should And it's okay. It's okay to feel good about success. But here's the thing. Your self-image should not change at all. At all. Because if your identity and if your righteousness is already totally rooted in Christ, then an ACT score is ornamental. Right? It doesn't define you at all. So you're free from the burden of success or Failure, let's think about a negative example because a lot of us aren't taking the ACT and a lot of us aren't doing too well on it if we have to take it, right? Let's say that you've been working on this new proposal at work. It's a big deal and you've been working hard, maybe put some extra hours in and, and, and it's time to present it, but it doesn't go well. You don't feel too great about it and your superiors, they don't, they don't like it too well. And so not only is your proposal rejected, but you get a talking to. Right? you get you get scolded and it becomes immediately clear that your value at your company has just decreased significantly. Alright? This is not a good day at the office. Now, it's fine to be disappointed by this, but here's the thing. You see, because believing in the gospel does not mean that we have to like it when bad stuff happens. We don't like suffering. We don't just we don't we don't not grieve it or mourn it, right? That's that's not it. Here's the thing. The failure, this failure, won't shake you. It doesn't doesn't shake you. It's it's not going to keep you up at night. It's not going to be embarrassing to you. Because if Christ has already forgiven you, and if Christ has already accepted you, then some work failure isn't going to change that, right? And and, and it's not going to define you. Even if other people always see you in light of this failure, right? Even if people always see you in light of this failure, your self-esteem won't be shaken, because God is actively, right now, looking at you with approval. Do you see how this works? So that means there's going to be no sulking, there's going to be no pity parties, there's going to be no snapping at the wife and kids, right? There's not going to be any massive quest for self-improvement and trying to redefine yourself, because you're already secure in Christ. Do you see how that works? In Christ, you are freed from the pressure to make a name for yourself. So you're free if you succeed, and you're free if you flop. Do you see how it works? That's incredibly relevant on Tuesday afternoons. But let's see a second way that the passive righteousness of Christ affects us. If I'm already forgiven, and if I'm already accepted, praise God, then the approval or disapproval of others, like you, it's not a big deal. It's, it's not a big deal anymore. It becomes minor. Here's how this works. If Christ already approves of you, who cares what some other guy at work thinks of you, right? If Christ has already seen you at your worst, not the Facebook version of you, but if he actually sees you as you are and he loves you, whew, why would you need someone else's approval? Let's say that today you walked into church and someone says, wow, you look nice today, right? Some of you are thinking, I have never had a compliment like that in my life, right? Let's say that someone says, hey, have you lost weight? (laughs) Let's say say that someone says that to you. Maybe you've experienced something like that and you know what the rest of your day is like. You are floating on clouds, right? The birds are chirping, the grass is greener, the sun is shining, right? You've got a little skip in your step. And, and all because someone told you you look skinny. But you see, a response like that probably means that you are overvaluing the praise of other people. That you're overvaluing the praise of other people. It shows how much we value the approval and the admiration of other people. Because if you woke up this morning and if you had already dropped in your gospel anchor, we'll talk about that in a minute, if you had already dropped that anchor deep, you would already have celebrated the fact that in Christ, God sees you and he approves of you. And man, you'll already be floating on clouds. You you will already be over the moon excited. You don't need their approval. It's nice to have it, but it's, not, it's, not, it's no big deal, right? It fades. Let's think about a negative illustration. Some of us have never been called skinny, so this is totally irrelevant. So let's think about a negative illustration, all right? Someone calls you fat, I'm just kidding, all right? Let's say that you are at work and you are hoping to minister to a lady that you work with. You finally worked up the courage to invite her to lunch with the hopes and the intention of sharing the gospel with her, all right? And so you take her to lunch, and you are so nervous you cannot even think straight. Frankly, you even chicken out. You don't even share the gospel. You just get a few sentences out about, you know, God's work in your life, a little bit of your testimony, and it's pretty clear that she's not appreciating it. She's very uncomfortable. It's what you would call an awkward situation, all right? And then, so you go back to the office and, you know, you kind of get over, you pray, God, you know, please, please bless this. I did my best, you know, help me to do better next time. And then a couple days later, you overhear a conversation about you. This girl you took the lunch is, is, uh, is telling someone else about your creepy lunch. And the two start talking in your hearing. Who does she think she is pushing her religion on me? The other one says... You know what? She's already, she seemed pretty fake to me anyways. So ask yourself, how does your passive righteousness that you have in Christ help you in this situation? Or let me ask you like this. Let's say you're trying to help another Christian. Counselor, how do you counsel that person? How does the righteousness that we get from Christ help us on Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock when people are talking bad about us? Well, of course, the overwhelming temptation for all of us would be to let comets like these just devastate us. I mean, you start getting clammy, you get a pit in your stomach, the birds are not chirping anymore, right? It's a bad day. It's hard. And those comets are going to devastate you if your main concern is to keep the approval of man. You're going to be a mess right? If you live and die on every compliment or every criticism or every like, but if your main aim is to please the Lord, if you are convinced that in Christ he already approves of you, not based on what other people say about you, not based at how good at, uh, at, at evangelism or how faithful you are, then you know what happens? Comments like these just roll off your back. They just roll off your back. Because now, your identity, it's not up for grabs anymore. It's already been established because you've already been forgiven and accepted. I hope you can see this. But there's another way, a third way that uh, the gospel affects us on Tuesday afternoons. If I'm already forgiven and if I'm accepted in Christ, then guess what? I'm not gonna be devastated when I sin. I will not despair when I sin. Now, for those of us who have repented, who have put away our sin, and who have turned to Christ, we will be grieved by the sin that remains in our lives. And we should be. If you are not devastated, or if you're not grieved about the sin in your life, there's a chance you may not be a believer, right? Believers hate the sin that remains in our lives. You see, for us, once conviction comes into our hearts, we're like Peter who wept bitterly, who went away and wept bitterly. But this is when the battle begins. If you're a Christian, this is where the battle begins for us to trust in Christ's righteousness and not in our own. You see, right after we sin, that's when the battle begins. Every drop of sin that remains in our lives should grieve us. It should even repulse us. But here's the thing. We should not act as if Christ finds us repulsive. Do you see the difference? You remember our gap in the gospel grid, right? As, as we are growing in Christ, our view of our own sin is becoming bigger, right? We see more and more that we are farther away from God. And so every time that we sin, the temptation will be to sin again by despairing. I've gone too far this time. This, this was just, surely this is the last straw. How could Christ love me? Or how could I minister in his kingdom? Right? How could, surely he can't accept me now. Or at least he doesn't want to talk to me. I'll, I'll wait 24 hours, right? Surely he can't use me now. You see, every time that we fail, We come face to face with the reality that we are sinful and that we deserve condemnation. Every new sin is a fresh piece of evidence that is brought before us, mocking us. Passive righteousness. You're not righteous. Look what you just did. Oh, how the accuser wants to see a bunch of sad, discouraged Mopey Christians, defeated by our own sin struggles, giving up, not willing to fight hard because we struggle. But when we look at the cross, where we hear that Christ has not only paid for our sin, but that Christ actually accepts us as we are, that we get the righteousness of Christ, that we get his blessings and his glory we will find hope to press on. We will find new strength to fight sin all the more because we can run to God instead of running away from God. We can run to God even when our sin is steaming and fresh because we don't have to try to make up for it anymore. You don't have to obey 10 more times before you go and pray or ask for forgiveness because we are already forgiven. We are already accepted. Church, do you see these glories? Oh, I wish that I could convince you. Spirit of God, please help us to see these realities. You are already forgiven and accepted in Christ and so everything changes. Everything changes. But there's a flip side of this. So let's go to number four. If I'm already forgiven and if I'm already accepted, then I'm not going to get puffed up if I obey. I won't be all excited and walking around with my chest out when I obey. Because if I'm already focused on the righteousness that has been given to me by Christ, then I don't have to worry about earning anything, right? I don't have to worry about it anymore. When we see the inheritance we have, some of us are like, Do you know why heiresses of big fortunes like goof off on TV and they don't have jobs, right? Because they have a massive inheritance and they live in light of that. Many of us, we have this massive inheritance, but we're slaving away at McDonald's, trying to get a little righteousness of our own so we can feel better about ourselves. You see, when we understand that we've already been given righteousness, we aren't proud of ourselves in wherever we obey. We don't need others to pat us on the back, right? We don't need approval for obedience. In fact, it's not even a big deal if people notice. You can serve in the nursery without anyone saying anything, right? Because you are actually free to obey God for God and not for yourself. Because now that I know, now that I'm secure that God is pleased with me, that he likes me, As I am, I don't have to obey in order to get him to like me or in order to keep him liking me. Instead, I obey to give him glory. Do you see how it all changes? Suddenly, I have no need. I don't even have a desire to practice my own righteousness in front of men because I'm bankrupt. I don't have any of my own. Any righteousness you see in me, God did it so he gets the credit. That's how it works. All the righteousness I have has been given to me in Christ. And so in those moments, and I pray that they are increasing, that you actually see me obeying God, he gets all the credit. And I'm not concerned with other people praising me. Instead, I want them to praise Christ because he did the work. He gets the credit. Story of our life, game over. God gets the glory. I'm getting very excited. I need to calm down. Number five, if I'm already forgiven and if I'm already accepted in Christ, then I'm secure enough to confess my sin to others. If I'm set free from the need to make a name for myself, or if I'm set free from the need to maintain a name for myself, or to maintain whatever you think that I'm actually like, you see, since Christ has publicly handled all of my sin, all of my garbage, since he has publicly handled all of that on the cross, I'm not afraid to go public with it with you. It's no, it's, it's, I'm not, you see, I can actually tell other people about my sin instead of covering it, instead of, instead of making fig leaves. I don't have to, I don't have to hide. You see, the reason confession is so hard is because it makes us feel naked. It makes us feel totally ashamed. But if you're in Christ, you don't have to be ashamed, because Christ has clothed you in his righteousness. Through sacrifice, he has made a way for skins to cover you. So I'm freed up to enjoy all the blessings of friendship from being authentic with you because of confession. I can actually be known by people, in fact, My sin becomes an opportunity. I had this opportunity a lot this week, right? My sin becomes an opportunity not only to confess, but to tell other people, can you believe that God would save somebody like me who did it again? Can you believe that? It gives you a chance when you confess your sin to give glory to God. But here's the thing. None of this happens on accident. You don't stumble into any of this. It takes intentional thinking and living to anchor yourself in the promises of the gospel. So let me try to give you now some strategies, right? Some strategies for how you stand in the gospel. One of the ideas behind this whole series is that we as Christians tend to live very weak spiritual lives because we don't get this stuff. Because we slowly drift away. And so the solution is to anchor ourselves in the realities of the gospel. One of the key texts that we've seen this in is in Colossians chapter 1 where Paul is telling the church that if, if you want to make it to heaven, if you want to continue on to be presented to Christ, then you must continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not drifting or shifting away from the hope of the gospel. They'd already heard the gospel, they already knew it, they were already getting benefits from it, but he's still commanded Don't drift. Stand. Stay in it. It's all over Paul's writings. That it's not just enough to receive the gospel. We must remain and stand in it. You see, it's when we drift that we're in danger. When we drift away from the realities of the gospel, we are in danger of ruin. So I like to think of this in terms of needing a gospel anchor. We have a need for a gospel anchor An anchor is what the Boston Harbor police officers really wished that they had back in the spring of 2010. There were three officers who were on harbor duty that night, and obviously one of their responsibilities is to watch over the fleet of seven very expensive speedboats that were used by the police force at the time. But they made headlines one morning when the sleek gray boat that they had named the Intercept, went missing from its slip down in the South Boston waterfront district. A small panic ensued among the men who were responsible for caring for the intercept, and they were only slightly relieved when they found the $250,000 speedboat drifting miles away, crashing up against the rocks under a bridge. Uh, The boat received $75,000 worth of damage. It appears that during the night, the boat had become untied and simply drifted away. In a statement to the press, a union spokesman put quite a spin on it. He said, this was an act of mother nature and that 20 supervisors could not have secured the boat any differently. All three men were mysteriously transferred to other districts within two weeks. You see, we must not be surprised to discover that we Drift, that we have a natural tendency to drift away from the gospel. So, what that means is that we must be diligent to drop anchor, deep water anchors in the promises of the gospel, to tether ourselves daily to the unchanging realities of the gospel. I'm convinced from the scriptures that it is not enough to simply tie yourself up once and hope that you're gonna make it through the wind and the waves. We must continue to stand in the gospel. So let's look at some strategies. I'm gonna offer several rapid fire strategies. If you want more, you can come back tonight. This stuff is intensely practical. Um, But a couple uh, strategies for dropping anchor in the gospel. So how can you be ready? Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock is coming. So how can you be ready for the realities that you face that day? The first way to prepare is this, to review the gospel every day. Some folks have called this preaching the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself each day. Every morning when you wake up, go through a dress rehearsal of the promises of the gospel. As a pastor, I, when people uh, talk about membership or baptism, a lot of times I'll say, Hey, tell me what you understand about the gospel. And so many people who profess to be Christians cannot coherently, in even an elementary way, explain the gospel. You cannot find comfort and joy in something you don't understand but in fuzzy, fuzzy land, right? We need to take the gospel out of fuzzy land and make it concrete. Write it down on an index card, right? Get it clear in your mind that I, on my own, am a wicked sinner and I deserve nothing but hell but God is a God of love and he has found a reason to love me and so he's given me mercy. And so in Christ, I am a new creature. We need to be preemptive. We need to get ahead of the problems. You see, I know that, I don't know what's gonna happen today, but I know I'm gonna need these promises, so I gotta beat this stuff into my head and my heart because I'm so prone to drift away. Get into the habit of soaking your heart in these realities day after day. Remind yourself, surprise yourself with God's love towards you, a sinner, day after day. Nights are good too. Second thing, study the life of Jesus. We'll talk about this more tonight. But think about it. If you pour over the Gospels and if you consider how Jesus lived, how did he respond in temptation? How did he deal with difficult Situations. What did Jesus do when he was betrayed and abandoned and slandered? What sort of rewards did his obedience earn? You see, when I study, when I have the, the view of passive righteousness in mind, when I study what Christ has done and the way that he held up under temptation, I realize I didn't have to, right? Because where Christ obeyed, I obeyed. Where Christ endured temptation, I endured temptation. It's like they took the medals off someone else's chest, off Christ's chest that he earned, and they put them on me, and I get the credit and the honor. So study Christ in the Gospels and marvel and imitate him and rejoice. Number three, this is a big one. Review the Gospel right after you sin. Your life affords numerous opportunities to review the gospel. Every sin is a new chance to celebrate it. You see, the forgiveness of sin is far more beautiful when you have a specific sin in mind. And the constant sins and failures in our lives give us ample opportunities to review the gospel. So here, the way this works is every time that I'm convicted of sin, pause. And review all the glories of justification with that specific sin fresh in your mind. Review the gospel on good days when you've done all right, you think. And review the gospel on bad days when it's all falling apart. Whether you've been faithful or unfaithful, remember that in Christ, if you're in Christ, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you can do to make him love you less. A fourth thing, review the gospel by confessing your sin to others. When you condition yourself in the gospel by making the habit of confessing yourself to others, the key thing is this, you stop hiding. You stop hiding. You don't, you don't need to hide anymore. So when you confess, you actually get to practice. You get to practice running to Jesus and telling other people at the same time. You get grace and you give grace at the same time. Guys, by the way, this is the point of the church. We gather to do this. So if you're not doing this in the church, if you come to services, that's great. But if you don't have meaningful relationships where you're celebrating the gospel with other people, you are barely involved. That's the point of the bride, right? That's the point of the church. Confession is not a burden, a chore, a drudgery to, the, to avoid. The confession is confession's not like the dentist. There are blessings. And every time we confess our sin to God or to other people, we are boldly trusting in Christ and inviting others to do the same. I don't have time to go through this, but let me encourage you with this. Another reason I don't have it up there is sing. We just sang so many glorious gospel promises. Sing them until you believe them and feel them. Remind yourself with song what God has done and marvel. So many of us sing with such weak hearts because we don't care about what we're singing. So sing. Sing the glories of the gospel. Will you close with me in prayer? Father, as we move now into a time of invitation, we recognize that even if we understand some of these concepts, it's not enough to just understand them. We actually need power to obey them and to apply them. For many of us, we know so many things about the Bible. We know so many things about God and about the Christian life, yet we don't do them. So Lord, I pray now that in our time together that you would give us power by your spirit to act on these precious promises. I ask this in your name, amen.